0: in the series, I'm calling it Get It Together for really two reasons. We live in a world that's pretty messed up, and our world is messed up in at least two ways, two ways that I want to highlight for you. Way number one our world is messed up is morals. We've got a moral confusion going on. I'll just illustrate this. If you're in one group of people, and you hear that the other group of people has a guy in there who did something wrong, and then you're in this group of people and you hear that that group of people has a guy who did something wrong, you're facing a dilemma because you want to know what do you do about the guy in the other group that you don't want to do to the guy in your group. Just a quick example, um, you hear in the news all the time, there are these accusations of sexual harassment that are coming out uh, against a lot of prominent men. Right now, Virginia's got a guy that um, is the lieutenant governor and they're going to try to impeach him. He's a Democrat. The funny thing is, those same accusations were coming out against Republicans about a year ago. So the question is, when you hear the accusation come out that someone is uh, possibly an abuser of women or something like that, we live in a society right now where you have to ask follow-up questions you have to ask follow-up questions how long ago was it can we verify it which political party are they in you know we have to ask these sorts of extra questions to figure out am i going to be outraged or not and, and maybe you're better than that. Maybe, you're do, maybe you don't identify the differences between the different political parties and stuff. Maybe you recognize that uh, doing something that violates another human being is always wrong. Maybe you're okay with that and you recognize that. But still, we all are in this world where we ask the questions. We find out there's something wrong and so then we ask lots of follow-up questions to try to identify, is this the time when I will care about that particular moral issue? Or is this the time when I will allow myself to forget about that particular moral issue? We live in a messed up world. We don't even have the same ideas about morals. And then the other problem with our world is that we are divided from each other. And that exacerbates the moral problem. Because like I said before, if I'm in this group and a guy in my group does something wrong, I'm likely to show him more grace. But if a person in the other group does something wrong, I'm likely to want to get them somehow. And so we live in this world where not only do we have the moral ambiguity and the moral problems, we also have these divisions going on. And wouldn't it be awesome? One of the the most awesome things we love about our divisions is that it gives us the opportunity to point our fingers at someone else who's got it worse. I mean, that's why we love reality TV shows, don't we? Because you watch a reality TV show, and yes, someone is going to win, and that one person is going to come out better than you are now, perhaps, because of some windfall of cash, but every other person on the show is going to lose, and you get to watch them lose. It's just so wonderful to be able to point your finger at all the problems that someone else has. Although, isn't that a result of our divisiveness? You see, I'm going to give you permission to point your finger at someone Over the next few weeks We're going to be doing a study In the book of Corinthians Because the Corinthians are a group of people Who are facing these exact problems They've got some moral ambiguities Where they can't determine if something is right or wrong Depending on who's doing it And they have some relationship divisions Some conflicts between the two of them And this is the book Where these people are messed up And I'm giving you permission to point your finger at them And say look how bad those people are Because in this book that we are going to be reading, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the people in Corinth to smack them upside the head and say, you got to get it together, man. You got to get your acts together. You guys have this moral ambiguity. You're all over the map. Get it together. And you're divided among each other. You need to get it together. And so we've got these two issues that are going on. One is the moral issue where everybody's sort of just floating and they've got to get something solid. And the other one is the fact that they're divided and unrelated to each other and they need to get it together, bring it back together to have some unity. And so the Apostle Paul writes these letters. We're going to read 1 Corinthians first and then we're going to do 2 Corinthians after that. But he's writing these letters to them to basically smack him in the face and say, get it together. Now, uh, there's, there's just a, a problem that um, since they have a problem with moral ambiguity and they have a problem with divisiveness, as we read through 1 Corinthians, you just might find some similarities between their world and our world. And at that moment, you're no longer going to be able to point your finger only at them. You're going to have to start recognizing that a lot of that applies to you too. But the good news is that the stuff Paul writes about applies anywhere there's moral ambiguity and divisiveness. And so it applies to us. And we're going to find some good answers in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians. We're going to take it all the way to Easter. Not Easter Sunday, but the week before Easter. That's how long we're going to take it in Corinthians. And we're going to just walk our way through it. If you're part of a community group, you might be able to do a Bible study. I I prepare discussion sheets every single week. And so we're going to work through this stuff together over the course of the next few weeks so that we can get our act together, even as the Apostle Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians to get their act together. So uh, with all of that, that introductory stuff out of the way i need to give you some background for the book in order for you to understand what first corinthians is all about you have to understand some of the background to the book and there are two major questions you have to know one is tell me about corinth and two tell me about paul's relationship with the people of corinth so first let's talk about the city The city of Corinth is located in the uh, little V area of Greece that is the uh, Isthmus of Greece, okay? It's the Achaean Peninsula. So let me show you a map on the screen here. Uh, It's a little bit washed out, but you can see the Mediterranean Sea is this big blue area in the middle. The top is Turkey coming from the center of the screen at the top all the way to the top right-hand corner. Then it sweeps down, and it's uh, it's going to be... um, the land of Palestine or Judea where Israel is right there. Jordan River, Judea, all that kind of stuff. And then it sweeps down around to Egypt. But Greece is in the top left-hand corner. It's this triangular shape jutting down into the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And you can barely see Italy just off of the corner to the left. You can see the tail end of the boot of Italy off to the corner to the left. Rome is way over there, midway up the boot of Italy. But we're looking at Greece because that's where Corinth is. In fact, let me point you to Corinth. Corinth is this little city. Let's draw the arrow. Okay, so Corinth is this little city right there. And um, if you can see it, I don't know if you can, but if you can see it, the the peninsula of Greece is like this uh, triangle, as I said, in um, the Mediterranean Sea. But coming in from the west side is an inlet. And it chops the triangle right in the middle. But over here on the far east side is a four-mile-wide strip of land called the Isthmus of Corinth. And that little strip of land is where the city of Corinth is. And so anything that goes from the northern part of Greece to the southern part of Greece, if it's going to travel by land, it has to go through Corinth. But more than that, because of how treacherous the waters around Greece can be most of the year, the Romans, when they were dealing with trade with anywhere in the Mediterranean world, they would frequently travel through Corinth. They would sail to some place in northern Greece, and they would take a land route through the Greece peninsula until they got to some other place where they could sail away, and then they would continue on in their journey. And so Corinth is on this little isthmus, this little strip of land, four miles wide, where everything passed through. Everything. Now, um, in the human body, the place where everything passes through is not the cleanest of the places. And, uh, but you should know that Corinth is beautiful. I wanna show you this picture. This is actually the area around the Mediterranean Sea, that little inlet where you can see the isthmus of Corinth on the far left-hand side. You can see the city down there, and it's only four miles wide before you get to more water on the other side. But there it is, this little strip of land, that's where Corinth is, and that is where everything passed through. So some things you need to know about the city. I was reading a commentary this last week, and the best analogy this writer could use for Corinth is that it was all three, New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. Corinth was New York because it was the cosmopolitan city where everything met. It was a a major metropolitan area where you would have like um, finances. Were there. there was a lot of money passing through Corinth. There was a lot of trade passing through Corinth. The stock exchange would likely be in Corinth. As a matter of fact, the Olympic Games were on the peninsula of Greece. But back in the ancient world, there was another kind of games that was just as popular as the Olympics. It was called the Isthmus Games, and they happened in Corinth. And so all this stuff would pass through Corinth. It was a major world trade center, like New York. New York. But it was also like Los Angeles. Because in Los Angeles, there's all this exploration with new ideas. You know, I know a lot of you Indiana people look at California people like they're weird. Like, you know because we are it's okay because there's a lot of californians who are like exploring new ideas and new thoughts you've got hollywood in california that's where the cultural center of our country kind of is because a lot of our culture comes from our entertainment and so that's a, a lot of that is being created and fashioned in los angeles also los angeles has a ton of churches I mean, there are so many churches in Southern California, it's actually surprising. But there are tons of churches, there's a lot of religious stuff happening in Southern California. But then on top of that, Corinth was kind of one of those cities where what happens in Corinth, happens again in Corinth. Because in Corinth, there was all kinds of opportunities for you not just to experience religious pleasures, but all sorts of other pleasures, and so it's a lot like Las Vegas. That uh, anything that could happen could happen in Corinth. If you could use money to acquire for yourself a particular pleasure, Corinth would be the place where it would be offered. That's the kind of land that Corinth is. Now, as you're thinking about Corinth and the kind of place that it was, there's one final detail you need to know. The ancient world used the word Corinthian not to refer to a book of the Bible. The ancient world used the word Corinthian to refer to loose people. And by that, I mean fornicators. By that, I mean people who were just, they would do anything. You know, it didn't matter. They would just do anything. And so the word Corinthian referred to this kind of uh, worldview. I mean, you've got money, you've got pleasure, you've got uh, wealth, and you've also got a cosmopolitan area. And the final thing that is bred in cosmopolitan areas is a confusing sense of identity. Who am I? You have a choice to make. Either you blend in with the other people or you separate from them. And Corinth, the city, had some problems relationally and morally. Now, I need to take you to Paul's relationship with Corinth. And that starts in Acts chapter 18. So we're not even going to start with 1 Corinthians. We're actually going to go backwards. We're going to go to the book of Acts, and we're going to look in Acts chapter 18 to learn about Paul's relationship with the people in Corinth. Flip there. It's going to be on page 522, if you're using the paper Bibles we passed out. But here it says, uh, verse 1, chapter 18, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he was in Athens, the center of the Greek world of thought, You know, lots of wisdom and and knowledge are in Athens and philosophy. And he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. And the people in Corinth love it when people from Athens come. Because people from Athens have all kinds of new ideas, all kinds of interesting concepts and thoughts. And the people in Corinth were not all about the ideas. They were about the money. But when the new ideas came, it was cool to hear them. And so Paul shows up. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, there are already two weird things that you should notice about this. Two things that don't really make sense. Uh, They might not make sense to you because you don't know the history, but they don't make sense to anyone because they don't match what the history situation is. You see, Paul went to Corinth, and he made his own money, but he was also trying to teach people. And that confused them. See, he sold tents. He made tents, he sold tents, he made his own money, but he was also trying to teach people. And in Corinth, things didn't work that way. How many of you... um, you don't have to raise your hands, but if you want to, that's fine. How many of you uh, know someone or you yourself participate in the watching of YouTubers? Yeah, no one's raising their hands. That's okay. Um, I know It's I know you're, you admit it in, in secret, but this is a new phenomenon that didn't exist when I was a kid, that people stare in front of their computer's camera and talk and record it and put it on YouTube and people watch it. Like this, this is a thing, it happens. I don't know if you're aware of this, some people do it while playing video games and you don't even see their face. They're just playing a video game and talking and these people, their job is to make videos that they send out to YouTube that other people watch and because their job is YouTube, they are called YouTubers. It's a, uh, it's a problem among our young people today because people are growing up saying, I wanna be a YouTuber when I grow up. They used to say, I wanna be a sports star or something like that listen kids don't dream that way because it'll never happen but I'm just you know I just don't want to give you false hopes or anything but anyway so the youtubers that are out there this is how it works for those of you who are too mature to not know about it but um, the youtubers the way it works is that they make money off of advertising so they get views they get subscribers youtube puts ads on and they make money but a lot of them don't make enough money on advertising to actually do it as a full-time job so they've got this other thing going on called patreon and pay- Patreon is a website where you can sign up to be a supporter of someone else. So here's this dude. He's out there making videos. Let's just call him Bob because let's say Bob likes to talk. Anyway, so let's just call him Bob. He's out there making videos and you want to support him. And so what you do is you go to Bob's Patreon page and you sign up as a subscriber. And every month, Patreon takes money out of your bank and sends it to Bob. And what does Bob give you in return? Nothing, but he keeps making videos. Yay. And so uh, anyway, this is how Patreon works. There are patrons on Patreon who give money to the person who's doing the thing that gives you information. Now, I did a big explanation there about the whole YouTuber phenomenon, but I'll ask you a question. If you were going to go to YouTube and watch someone talk for 20 minutes and you notice before you hit play that that person had eight subscribers and this particular video had been watched a total of 10 times, would you click play knowing that it's going to take 20 minutes of your life away? You probably wouldn't. Because here's the thing, you and I know the same thing. I'm only going to really pay attention to the new ideas coming to me that other people also think are interesting. I'm gonna wait until I see a video with more views on it, more subscribers, then I'll watch that guy. But if someone has no Patreon supporters, they've got no subscribers, they've got no one paying attention to them, they actually have a job, and like they go home at night, after their job and they make YouTube videos that no one watches, would you pay attention to them? No, you wouldn't pay attention to them. That was Paul's problem in Corinth because when he got to Corinth, he had no patrons. Corinth was a society where if you had something to teach, if it was worth teaching, someone would pay for it. Paul was doing his own work. He was making his own money. This causes a problem from the very moment Paul shows up in Corinth. Because he is making his own money, but he's trying to teach them about Jesus. And his first problem is that no one trusts him. No one thinks that he's got anything good to say because if he had something good to say, someone would be paying for it. That was his first problem. His second problem was also in the passage we just read. He went to the synagogues trying to reach both Jews and Greeks. That's a problem. See, Jewish people believe there is one God who sometimes intervenes in the world of men to do amazing, miraculous things. Greek people believe there are hundreds of gods who don't care about you in the slightest. That's a totally different worldview. So trying to get both of those people together on the same page to believe something was already difficult. But let's just keep going because I'm taking too much time. It's verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So now, some things are getting solved. Some new guys show up, new people can make some money, and so Paul doesn't have to work anymore. So he quits his job, he quits working, so now he can look like the part. He can be the preacher guy. But notice he's also only talking to Jews now. He's only talking to Jews. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul, verse 6, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul says, fine, I'm done with you Jewish people. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So he focused on the Jews. That didn't work. Now he's going to focus on the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue. This is one of my favorite verses, okay? Pay attention here. Paul left the synagogue and went next door. I love that. So the synagogue is where he's teaching about Jesus. They kick him out. So he leaves the synagogue and goes next door to the home of a guy named Titius Justus, who was a believer in God. (laughs) a worshiper of God it says Verse eight, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This is amazing. Paul is preaching to the Jewish people in the synagogue. They say no more. He says, fine, I'll leave. He goes next door, and the next thing you know, the synagogue ruler now believes, plus Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God, who clearly wasn't a Jew, he was a Roman guy, but he couldn't go into the synagogue because he wasn't a Jew, so he lived right next to the synagogue, hoping maybe there'd be a little bit of a God by osmosis or something. I don't know. But he worshiped God anyway. So Paul goes to his house and there in that house, the synagogue ruler comes to faith and a ton of other Gentiles come to faith. So it's like Paul got the thing that he actually wanted, Jews and Gentiles. And he's not even doing it in the synagogue. Keep going. See what happens next. Um, One night, verse nine, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And there you begin to realize something's going on. See, the Jewish people who were upset about Paul must have sent out some sort of threat to him. And Paul's beginning to get a little bit scared, a little bit afraid And so he spends some time in prayer and God says to him in a vision, don't be afraid. No one's going to attack you and harm you because I've got this. I've got this. I've got many people in the city. I'm going to protect you. So, verse 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Before we go to the rest of this, there's just a cool thing. I'm, I'm going to waste too much time on it, but I've got to tell it to you anyway because I think it's cool. Galio was in the province of Achaia for two years. We know the exact date he was there because he filled out an inscription that correlated some other things and so we have archaeological evidence of Galileo's presence there in Achaia between 50-ish and 52-ish AD. We have it that narrow. We know he was there for like two years and Paul was there at that same time. I love this Because it tells me one, God coordinated a moment where Paul was gonna be in Corinth for a year and a half. And that year and a half was going to overlap with Galileo so that he could be there for this particular incident that we're going to see. So that Luke could write it down so that you and I could know the exact moment when Paul was in Corinth. That he was in Corinth around 51 AD. And we have that date firm. This is one of those moments where you know you can trust the Bible. Because there are details in there that are just tossed in there that couldn't possibly be uh, something that someone made up. These are uh, these are historically verifiable, accurate sorts of things. I just love that about reading the text of Scripture. But anyway, we got to keep moving. So here, Galileo is there. And this is what happens. Verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. And I just love the, the little intricacies of this story. <laughs> Paul leaves the synagogue and he goes next door. Or they are accusing Paul in this uh, thing and the, the Roman guy doesn't do anything about it. And so they grab the synagogue leader and beat him up. What is that all about? Why would, we, why would you beat up Sosthenes? What did he ever do? Well, maybe he was defending Paul. I don't know. Crispus was the former synagogue leader. We know that he's not there anymore because now this guy's the synagogue leader. Crispus became a believer. We saw that earlier. He's now following Paul and following Jesus. But Sosthenes, maybe he's a little sympathetic. I don't know. All we know is this. The city of Corinth and the people of Corinth did not get along with anyone. The Jews didn't get along with the Greeks. The Greeks didn't get along with Paul. The Jews didn't get along with Paul. No one got along with Gallio. He's from Rome. He doesn't want to pay attention to any of the stuff they're doing. And they beat up Sosthenes right in the middle of the proconsul's viewing, and yet he says, whatever. You can tell this is a messed up place. Now, right after this, Paul leaves. It says Paul stayed there for a little while, and then he leaves. What happened after he leave? After he left, we don't really know, but we know a couple things. When we read 1 Corinthians, he refers in 1 Corinthians to some people who came to him to give him a report of what was going on in the church. We also know that Paul refers to a letter that he wrote to them before 1 Corinthians, and we also know that he refers to a letter they wrote to him. So that means at some point after Paul left Corinth, Wherever he was, probably in Ephesus, someone from Corinth gave a report to Paul about the things going on in Corinth. I remember the people in Corinth, they didn't know who to relate to. Did they like Paul? Did they not like Paul? Did they like Jesus? They don't know. So anyway, they report to Paul something that's going on. So he writes a letter to them and clearly they don't do what he says. And so they write another letter saying, we're not going to do what you said. In fact, this is what's going on now. And so our letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, is at least Paul's second letter to them. Maybe it's a later letter. Maybe it's even his third letter. We don't know. But it's what we call 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul has written after a number of other things have been done. And you got to know Paul is upset. He is frustrated. He is irritated with these people. And so 1 Corinthians is Paul trying to slap the Corinthians in the face because they have this long history of not getting anything right. He spent a year and a half with them and they couldn't get it fixed. Now he's been away from them and he's been writing them letters and they don't. And so he's just like, okay, fine, I'm going to stop Mr. Nice Guy and I'm going to tell it like it is. Now we finally come to 1 Corinthians. So flip with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says this Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Is that not cool? The Jews beat up this dude, and he's like, fine, I'll hang out with Paul. And so he goes and he follows Paul around. And so he had been the synagogue leader, but now he's not there anymore. He's following Paul around. He's with Paul, and Paul mentions him. It's a common name in Greek. The only reason Paul would mention it in this letter at this time is just to let the Corinthians know, oh, by the way, I've got Sosthenes with me. Just one more example of how these people failed, and Paul is winning. Keep going. Verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's introductions, What he usually does is he sets up something for the rest of his book. But what he does here in Corinthians is brilliant because he does something subversive and underneath the covers just a little bit so that he's trying to toss in a tiny little thing that later on when it comes will make more sense to the people. But he does two things here. Number one, he says, you are a church, a church of God. God has called you to be a church. Number two, you are sanctified. That's the word for being made holy in the past tense. You have been made holy. So you are a church of God. He has made you holy, and you are called to be holy. It's not just enough for you to recognize that you're a church, that God called you. It's important that you realize you have been made perfect, but you're still becoming perfect. You're being made holy. See, what Paul is doing there is just tossing in a little idea that says it doesn't matter what you are, you're going somewhere. And you need to be going somewhere. And this letter is going to tell you how to get there. That's the first of his two major themes in this letter. The second thing, he says to them, he says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Did you notice that? He says, together with all those everywhere. Paul's trying to make a point here also, that you're not alone. You're a church. You've been made holy. You still need to be holy. Oh, and by the way, you're not on your own. You're together with all the others who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. He's their Lord and our Lord. He says both of those things. So these are the two issues Paul's going to address in 1 Corinthians. He's going to address the moral holiness issue. You need to become holy. And he's also going to address the relationship issue. You need to get together with other people. you got to get it together holiness. you got to get it together relationship-wise. Let's keep going. Verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. I have to stop there. Because, again, that doesn't make sense. Let me just ask you a question. I, I know some of you have kids, right? Some some of you are parents in this room. You have kids. Um, when your kids don't do what you've asked them to do repeatedly, how do you feel about your kids? Uh, You have probably been frustrated would be the right word, right? Frustrated is the right word for that. Some of you are bosses. And when your employees don't do what you've asked them repeatedly to do, the right word for that would be frustrated. Frustrated frustrated, right? Some of you um, have your teachers, and you have students, and you've been teaching the same thing over and over again, and the students don't seem to get it, nor are they doing what your instructions are, and the proper word for that is frustrated, right? I have a lot of friends in this town who are pastors, and I can tell you the pastor friends that I know find it very easy to use the word frustrated in conversations about their churches. The proper word is frustrated. Paul's word is thankful. That doesn't make sense. Paul is upset with these people. He's angry with these people. He's writing a letter to smack them in the face. You will see that as we go through 1 Corinthians. He is upset with them, and yet his word, I'm thankful I thank my God. What in the world, Paul? It, it almost sounds like he's playing Mr. Nice Guy, but you've got to know he's not, okay? He's setting something up because you've got to read the rest of that. I thank my God for you because you've been so nice to me. I thank my God for you because you have done everything I've asked you to do. I thank my God for you because I'm seeing you grow and it's a wonderful thing. I'm thanking my God for you because you're just so cool. No. I thank my God because of you. I thank my God for you because of his grace. He's not thanking God for them because of them he's thanking God for them because of God Paul's like yeah I know you guys are all messed up I know you guys are when I think about you I feel frustrated but I'm still very thankful you see he says something really interesting here he says in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. These are the people who don't know how to get anything together. These are the people who are arguing with each other. These are the people who, they are not enriched in anything. They're arguing, debating. They don't know who's right, what's right, whatever. And and yet Paul says, you've been enriched. See, Paul says, I'm thankful to God because of what God is doing in you. Not because of who you are. I can see who you are. I can tell who you are. I can watch who you are acting like. But that's not who you really are. In fact, I can hear Paul say these words to them. Who you are acting like is not who you really are. I want you to write that down. Because I believe God might say the same thing to you. Who you are acting like is not who you really are. Paul says, in him you've been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you, therefore do not, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you notice that? Paul says you already have every spiritual gift, you already have all the knowledge, you You have everything you need. In fact, God is the one who's faithful and he is going to do a work in you that's going to make you blameless. Oh, I see you now. And you are not blameless. But God is going to do a work in you that's going to make you blameless and not just blameless, it's also going to bring you together into his family underneath Jesus. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, this is what Paul says. He says, I see what you're doing. I hear the reports about you. I know everything there is about you, but I also know this. Who you are acting like is not who you really are. Who you really are is a recipient of grace and spiritual transformation. Who you really are is a glorious thing that God is still working on. And he's not done with you yet, but I know that he is faithful. And what he started in you, he will finish. And what he started in you, he will do. And even though you are not now blameless, you will be blameless. And even though right now you're divided, you will be in fellowship. I see that, Paul says. He says, I know this not because of you or how good you are or how good my letter writing is. I know it because of how good God is. Go on. Verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is one of our major problems. Our major problem when it comes to this world, I think, is our sense of identity, our recognition of who we really are. Because, see, it's the identity that we need that causes us to divide ourselves from other people. This is what happens. I feel like I need to know something about myself. And so since I don't know that thing, I have to find some people who tell me things about myself. And I will listen to a number of different people until I find the person who's telling me the thing about myself that seems to resonate with me. And then I will join that community of people and I will stay in that community of people because they're the ones who are telling me who I am. And it seems to make sense to me. And now that I'm in this community and now that my identity is wrapped up in this community, a lot of other things come out. Like how do I live? And the questions of what is right and what is wrong from my perspective. Now because I'm in this community, it's all because I need to know who I am. And God all the while says, but I know who you are. And who you're acting like now is not who you really are. You are a recipient of grace. You are a recipient of spiritual transformation. And that's why the separations make no sense. That's why Paul looks at the church and he says, I plead with you to get it together. To be united with each other. Take a look at what Paul says there. He says that all of you would agree. Look at verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Oh, arguments in a church? No. (laughs) There are quarrels among you. What I mean is this one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? was Paul crucified for you were you baptized in the name of Paul I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name yes I also baptized the household of Stephanus but beyond that I don't really remember if I baptized anyone else for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power I gotta admit to you this is my problem this is this is one of one of my problems the, the entire church industry is based upon what's going on right, right 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 here. I follow this guy I follow that guy I follow this guy my church just has Jesus's name on it. Our, our whole church industry is based on this and and you need to know that I myself, I'm prone to falling into this trap. You know, because see, I look at the story, and at the very end of that little passage we just looked at, he says, I preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I I have a hard time doing that. I I feel like I need to somehow bring something smart to the table. I feel like I have to somehow bring some eloquence to the table. I feel like I have to somehow impress you. You have no idea the problems that I face emotionally during the week when I'm trying to think of which one of you in the room is going to like what I'm about to say and which one of you is going to be upset with me. It's an issue with, with me. It's an issue with not just me, with any other pastor. And I tell you this, there's a part of me deep down in the dark places of my, my you know, skeleton's closet. There's a dark place in me that I want you to visit other churches. I want you to go online. I want you to listen to all the preachers in town. And then I want you to come back here and say, Jeff, I came back here. yeah, some say I follow Paul, some say I follow Apollo, some say I follow Christ, and other people say I follow Jeff. And I'm like, yeah, I tell you what, it's it's tempting. You know why? Because my identity is in the wrong place. My identity is messed up. My sense of who I am and who I'm supposed to be and who I need to be is in the wrong place. And so I fall into the same silly trap where Paul says, I don't even remember who I baptized. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which preacher you listen to. It doesn't matter what preaches what, what the preacher is preaching. What matters is this the cross of Christ you see what Paul is trying to say on the surface it looks like he's talking about divisions right? it looks like he's talking about divisions in the church divisions between people it looks like that but it's not what Paul is saying is that you've got the surface problem and the surface problem is people from Chloe's household tell me you're in disagreement with each other you're having an argument in your church oh my goodness what a, what a rare thing that looks but that's just the surface problem your problem is not the problem your problem is a symptom of the problem And the real problem is that you've lost focus on the gospel. The message of the cross of Christ. That's the problem Paul is trying to say. He's saying you've focused on all this other stuff and it's gotten you into all this trouble. You don't have your own sense of identity. You are trying to create these other little pockets of of things that you can associate with. And so here's the deal. All of that stuff, that's just a symptom. The real problem is that you've lost focus on the gospel, the good news of the message of Jesus. There's just one small problem. It doesn't make sense. I mean, he says that if I were too eloquent, you might pay attention to the words of God through my lens, and that wouldn't be good. He says you need to get the message of Jesus raw and unfiltered. You ready for it? Here it is. A guy 2,000 years ago came to the earth told people he was God, died, and came back to life again. Next question. What difference does that make for me? You see, it's foolishness to think that some event that happened a long distance away, thousands of years ago, that some dude died and now i somehow get some benefit from that today 2019 that doesn't make sense that's foolishness and because it doesn't make sense because it's foolishness we reject that simple sort of thing and say it's too easy it's too simple it doesn't make sense i need to season this with something I need to put something else on top of it. I need to layer issues on top of it. I have to have favorite songs. I have to have favorite preachers. I have to have favorite environments. Don't raise your hands on this. one. But how many of you would say you come to this church because of the preaching? Don't raise your hands. How many would would say you come to this church because of the preacher? How many would say I come to this church because of the music? How many would say, I come to this church because of some program the church has, because of some friendship I have? And how many of you would say, I come to this church because I love Jesus and I know those people do too? You see, every single one of us has this issue in our heart where we've layered all kinds of stuff on top of the gospel of Jesus. And we say it's that other stuff that matters. And it's because we have a problem And the problem goes way down deep into who do I think I am? And what difference does Jesus make? Take a look at the rest of this section. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate where's the wise person where's the teacher of the law where's the philosopher of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of the world the world for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe I need to untangle that for you real quick what he's saying is this you can get any teacher you want you can get any philosopher you want no one's going to make sense of this This plan of God that some person 2,000 years ago would die and it should somehow make a difference in your life, this plan of God, it doesn't make logical sense. And it's okay for it to not make logical sense because God doesn't want one human person's wisdom to rise to the surface because that would create some divisions and divisiveness. The only way this ever works is if it's too foolish for all of us. So he comes up with this really simple thing. Keep reading. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He's saying some people just get it. It just makes sense to them. It resonates with their hearts. And it's like all of a sudden they don't see it as foolishness. They see it as power. And those people, something has happened where they get to see it as power. What is the thing that happened? Keep going, verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He looks at these people, he says, you weren't special. When I showed up in Corinth, you had nothing going for you. You were hanging out in a synagogue. You were just Jewish people people some of you were just gentile people you had nothing going for you there was no real money going on there was no real anything going on i came to you i didn't even bring you any wisdom i just told you the story about jesus dying on a cross and that it somehow makes a difference in your life that somehow god connects that to you so that you get your forgiveness so that you can experience eternity in heaven i just told you the story and you just accepted it why would you do that it's because god chose the foolish things Of the world. In other words, God reached out to you. Verse 28, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness holiness and redemption therefore as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord Paul says look at who you were you were the foolish people but God takes this very simple message and he brings it to you do you think you were somehow smart enough to accept this no God revealed it to your heart and showed you that it was powerful, and you accepted it. Why? Because God moved in you. It's not your responsibility. It's not your doing. It's not your activity. God moved in you. He's the one who called you and made you a church. He's the one who sanctified you, and in a few weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to become holy, but right now, you got to know who you are. You are who you are just because of Jesus. And Jesus only. There's nothing else. Either you are in Christ and you are something because of Jesus, or you are not in Christ and you still have to figure it out for yourself. And all you've got left is to try to find some sort of wisdom. And the whole time you know that your wisdom is only partially there. And you're getting close to it, but it's not right. It doesn't feel totally right. It feels almost right. So you have to believe the community of the people who surround you. You have to believe the things. You have to do the things. You have to experience the things. The church in Corinth was in an environment where they all knew how to party. They all knew how to forget the big questions. The church was also part of an environment where they all knew how to ask the right big questions so that you avoid the important questions. They did all this stuff. They played with wisdom and philosophy. They played with all kinds of pleasures. They played with money as much as they could. And Paul just smacks them all in the face and says, it's Jesus, only Jesus, always Jesus. Whoever you are, whoever you're pretending to be, is not who you really are. Who you really are is an object of grace and spiritual transformation because of Jesus alone. I hope that over these next couple of weeks you get your identity solid and the question for you really boils down to this, have you responded to the gospel, that simple message of Jesus dying on a cross so that your sins could be forgiven? so that God could welcome you into his family. The simple message of who I am on a process of becoming holy and who I am in the journey along with other people, that's what it is. Have you responded to the gospel? Today might be your day to just simply say, God, today's my day to let you know, I'm just gonna say yes. I'm not going to try to figure out all the answers, but I can tell you're doing something in my life. You're doing something in my heart. I want to say yes. And so I say, Jesus, I receive you. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I receive you. Maybe for you the question isn't so much, have I responded to the gospel, but am I still responding to the gospel? Is it still the truth in my life? Is it still controlling my days? Am I following the path of holiness and am I joined with others who are too? I want to give you a few moments just kind of in in silence to do some reflection and to pray over these things and to ask your heavenly Father, Father, in what way have I misunderstood me? And Father, what needs to happen next? I'm going to ask you to spend a few moments in silence. We'll close out with a time of uh, singing. We'll have our prayer team up front. But let me pray for you right now. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you. And we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith Wherever you are, life is a journey and no one should ever walk alone.